Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, The Impact of the Bible, with a message titled, The Awareness of One God. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. First Timothy 2 verse 5 says, There is but one God. However, we've all heard it. Look, there are so many religions in the world. I mean, who knows how many? And then among religions, there are subgroups like, for instance, the Sunnis versus the Shias in Islam, the Catholics versus the Protestants in Christianity. And in the end, everyone says they're right. I mean, how's the average person supposed to sort himself or herself out? And then isn't the world also filled with supposed holy books of all kinds? Well, of course, you know, that's all true, but just perhaps we're looking at it the wrong way. What if we step back from religious beliefs and speak more broadly about worldviews? You know, most of my hearers are familiar with that term, worldview, but for those who are not, let me explain. A worldview is a lens through which we look to understand what it is that we're seeing. Let me give a simplistic illustration. Years ago, I was 19 at the time. I had just come to faith in Christ, and off I went to Bible school. And in those days, that's what most Christian young people did. But I was still somewhat of a rascal then. And one night, and I don't know, it was about midnight, a friend of mine and myself, we'd broken into the school library. You know, for the life of me, I have no idea what we were doing there. But while we were there, one of our teachers unlocked the front door of the library, switched on the lights, and proceeded to go to the shelves, apparently looking for a book to read that night. And so there were the two of us hiding on one end of the bookshelves, hoping our teacher wouldn't see us, and thankfully he didn't. He found his book, turned out the lights, locked the door, went out. And when he was gone, my friend said, I mean, what would we have said if he had found us? Now, I was recently converted, and I was still very cheeky, and I said, well, we tell them that human bodies occupy space, and our bodies just so happen to be occupying this space at this point in time. (laughs) You know, the reason I mention that bit of foolishness is to showcase something that isn't so foolish at all. Human beings never simply observe something. Like our teacher saying, yep, yeah, there are two of my students in the library at midnight, rather When we see something, we always ask, why is that? That's what young children do. They ask, why? Drives adults crazy, but it's important. And a worldview is a why question. What's the meaning behind what I observe? Now, let me complicate that a bit more. According to James Sire, there are seven foundational questions that all human beings ask. And I won't go through all seven, but first, well, that's the foundational question. It's the question of what's ultimately important. Again, a silly explanation. Imagine two scenarios. First, you look out of the window across the street and you notice there's a slight breeze. The branches of the trees are swaying just a bit. Now, a second scenario. Imagine you're looking out the window and a passing car hits a child playing on the street. Now, which of those two scenarios is more important to you? The answer you give depends on what you think is of greater importance and All human beings think some things are more important than other things. Now, behind all of that are the things that you and I think are of ultimate importance, things that couldn't be more important or things that have no rival. And when it comes to what's of ultimate importance, there aren't a great many options. You might say God is ultimately important or the gods are ultimately important. Or you might say the material cosmos 
is of ultimate importance. That is, nature or matter or things that can be interacted with through our five senses are ultimately important. You see, after those three possible answers, everything else that you think is of ultimate importance is merely a subcategory after that. Let's say, for instance, that your philosophy of life is that you live for pleasure. Well, if that's you, that nothing is more important to you than your pleasure, I hope you see that ultimately you have defined your worldview. You believe that the cosmos is all that ultimately matters. And that is as important as saying that you belong to a certain religion. It's because what's most important to us defines everything about us. Now, James Sire says, there are other worldview questions. What does it mean to be human? That's a worldview question. Are we the product of random time plus chance, or are we created in the image of God? Another question is the question of what happens to a person at death. Do they continue to live or not? Are they to be judged by a righteous God or not? Okay, I've tried to get away from the question of religion, which in many people's minds is just confusing and lacks clarity, to the question of worldview, to which we must all agree each one of us has a worldview. I mean, for some it's very clear, but to others it's foggy, yet it's there nonetheless. So let's get back to the question of ultimate reality. When it comes to this foundational question, we might be able to say that in large overarching terms, there are only seven possible worldviews. I'm just going to give six of them. You know, first is the worldview of naturalism or atheism. Nature is all that exists. Second is the worldview of pantheism. Everything is God. Humans are God. The moon, the trees, the rivers, the fish, everything is God. Third is the belief structure of deism, which believes that one God exists and he created everything, but now he's left. He's not active in creation. He's not around anymore. Fourth is the view that a God exists, but that he is limited in power. That is, there are other things that are as powerful as God, either energy or nature or even evil. Fifth is the view of polytheism. This is the belief that there are many gods, countless gods. And finally is the view that there is but one God and that this one God is infinitely powerful and infinitely good. That, of course, is the view that we find in the Bible. And I mention all of that so that we don't think that there are an infinite variety of worldviews or religions. There are basically seven. Now, here's where things get very fascinating. More than half of the world is monotheistic. Now, given that reality, you might expect, especially if you're a naturalist, that there must be an infinite amount of possibilities as to who that one God is. Ha-ha! <laughs> but if you think that, you're wrong. As a matter of fact, if you think, as most human beings do, that there is but one God, then there is but one, ready for this, there is but only one option as to who that one God is. The answer as to who that one God is, is that that one God is Abraham's God. Look, let's list the monotheistic worldviews that are out there. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam make up the bulk of all the religions that believe in but one God. And a small monotheistic religion like Sikhism gained the knowledge of the one God from its encounter with Islam, and again, that refers back to Abraham's God. And here's where it gets even more profound. The only place we learn about this man, Abraham, and his one God is in the Bible. Excuse me, are you following me? I mean, what are the chances of that happening? 
am I saying that the worldview of the majority of the planet was informed by one book, and that book is the Bible? Yep, that's the case. Without the Bible, we would know nothing about the one God. This book is the only book that human beings have that tells us who the one God is. Now, forgive me if I take a little detour here. I mean, can you imagine, as is true of the Canadian educational system, that this one truth that I've mentioned is not even mentioned in the Canadian curriculum? Talk about a sheltered educational system where we spend more time talking about, you know, things like sexual identity than talking about human worldviews. It's utterly astonishing that this doesn't take up a large swath of our educational structure. But that explains why people in Canadian school systems know so little about the world. Now, forgive me, that's my hobby horse. Let's return to our theme. For one week, I've wanted to discuss the impact of the Bible on the world, and it's fair to say that there is no other book in human history that has impacted the worldview of the human race more than that one book, the Bible. The fact is utterly undeniable. Not only has the Bible outsold its nearest rival by many times, it has set the stage for all human thinking and all human worldviews. Now, this is part of a small series in which, you know, I'm not defending the Bible as the Word of God, which it is, but rather to get a handle on just how profound is the influence of the Bible on the world and why it is that here at Back to the Bible Canada, we make it our mission to teach the Bible and to do so in a way that's an accurate reflection of its intended meaning. Okay, since we have made the point that the Bible is the foundational book that tells us that there is a God that he's the only God, let's see how the Bible develops that theme. And then after I've done that, let's ask the biggest of all questions. Why does it matter? And why has that, the knowledge of the one God, become the defining issue of all human civilizations? So let's start at the beginning. The Bible begins with the words, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In other words, before any matter came into existence, there was already the one solitary, uncreated creator. The explanation for the cosmos, the laws of nature, and everything that exists is because the uncreated creator, the one and only God, brought all things into being. Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. Back to the Bible Canada, it's our hope that your walk with Christ would be strengthened and encouraged through the wide variety of resources made available through so many different mediums to ensure Bible teaching you can trust is freely accessible to those who desire to know the Bible and our Lord more deeply. One listener wrote, it is a joy to listen to Dr. Newfeld and the staff of Back to the Bible Canada as they faithfully teach the Bible daily. It's a real blessing to hear the word daily for encouragement and exhortation. If you feel blessed by this ministry, can we ask you to help us reach our fiscal year-end goal of $409,000? This year, a few friends of the ministry have offered to match your gift dollar for dollar up to $100,000 to make this campaign a success. To make your gift, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. The Bible not only tells us the story of the one God, it also tells the story of human beings and how we've become estranged from that one God. 
we as a race have rebelled against the one God. We've sought to become gods in our own right. And consequently, the knowledge of God has become clouded and confused and filled with untruths. We've wandered into darkness. That's what the Bible teaches. Spiritually, we're not evolving. Rather, we've devolved. We've fallen from relationship with our Creator, and consequently now we walk in ignorance and moral darkness and in wanton unbelief. We've been marred by sin, and the consequences of sin is death. Without going into the biblical drama of what happened to human civilizations as they stumbled forward without God, you know, by the 12th chapter of Genesis, we're introduced to Abraham. So let's talk about that remarkable man. Abraham lived from 2166 to 1991 BC. And according to the Bible, Abraham was born in Ur of the Chaldeans. That city no longer exists, but to put it into our terms, that city, you know, was about 300 kilometers southeast of the modern-day city of Baghdad in contemporary Iraq. The late Sir Leonard Woolley in the 1920s and 30s conducted a major archaeological excavation of that city, and he found it to be a marvel of the ancient world. It, it lay on the Euphrates River. It was a sophisticated city. It had vast libraries, as well as a temple complex to the gods, as well as a tower or a ziggurat dedicated to the moon god Nana. Now, many years later, when Joshua was describing the history of Abraham, he described something of that background. So in Joshua 24, verse 2, he says, And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Indeed, since we're talking about worldviews, Abraham grew up with a worldview of polytheism. So in his worldview, gods and goddesses were everywhere, and they influenced and directed nature. There was the god of the moon, the god of the rivers, and so forth. This is the world that he knew, and it's the world he would have died in. But then, according to the Bible, Terah, the father of Abraham, decided to take his family on a pilgrimage. They would leave Ur for reasons that aren't plain. They would follow the fertile crescent and go to the land of Canaan, which we will call later Israel. But Terah started, but he never got there. He got as far as Haran, which would be located in southeast Turkey, near the border of Syria. Well, that's as far as he got. And then there in Haran, everything changed. What changed is not that Abraham began a philosophical examination of his worldview and decided that his worldview was insufficient to explain the world in which he was living. You know, as all of us know, most of us will be born into a worldview and we're going to die in that same worldview. Very seldom do people change their worldviews, and Abraham had no reason to do so. But according to the Bible, what changed is that the one true God appeared to Abraham. That is, Abraham's faith is not the result of man's restless search for meaning, as important as that might be. Rather, Abraham's new faith in the one and only God comes as a result of revelation. God took the initiative and revealed himself to Abraham. Of course, that's not the end of the story. The Bible is not the record of Abraham's understanding of the one and only God. Rather, the Bible contains a record of Abraham's obedience, which rose out of his confident trust or faith in the one true God. And so God approaches Abraham with a proposition. Well, that's probably saying it wrongly. God gave Abraham a command, and then, following that, he gave him a promise. 
The command is simple. Go from your country, from your relatives, leave them all behind, and go to the land I will show you. That's the command. Then it's followed by a promise, or should I say three promises. The first promise is I will make you a great nation. That's the starting place. Abraham will become the father of a nation that will be overwhelmingly great. Of course, that's seen in two ways. First, that nation is undoubtedly the one that would come from his loins. Abraham begat Isaac, who begat Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. Israel had 12 sons who were the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. Israel is one of the dominant themes of the Bible. But the New Testament claims that through Jesus, the Gentiles who have come to Christ by faith have been engrafted into the vine of Abraham or the vine of Israel. And so when Abraham is told that his offspring will be as great as the grains of the sand on the seashore, it's not a wild exaggeration. It has to do with the number of the human race that would believe in Jesus and Abraham's one God. Now, the second promise that's given to Abraham is the promise of the land of Israel. And I say this just having gotten back from my seventh visit to the land of Israel. And the point is that from this land would come a message to the entire world. And the third promise is that Abraham would receive a blessing and that he would be the source of blessing to the whole world. That is, the one true God would be for Abraham and would work all things for Abraham's eternal good but also that it's through Abraham that the entire earth would hear of the one true God and his plan to reconcile sinful and rebellious humanity to the one true God. So that's the starting place for the Bible story of God and his plan to reconcile the world to himself. We normally refer to that as the Abrahamic covenant. There follows after that another covenant that builds on the first. It's the Mosaic covenant at Mount Sinai where God gives his laws for righteous living. That's followed by another covenant, and this is the covenant that God makes with King David, a covenant that says that one of David's sons will one day rule the earth and reconcile it to God. That's the hope of the Messiah. Now, those three covenants reach their climax with the coming of Jesus, who does two things. First, Jesus fulfills the other covenants. In the case of Abraham, he fulfills it by being the object of Abraham's faith and by showcasing that it wasn't by works, but by faith that we become righteous before God. Jesus also fulfills the covenant of Mount Sinai, not only by explaining the true intent of Sinai, but by himself perfectly keeping the law of God and thereby being the only true righteous man that Moses described. And finally, Jesus fulfilled the covenant of David by being David's offspring, by being the Messiah who will eventually rule the earth, fulfilling the hope of Abraham that the entire world would be blessed. So Jesus fulfills all the longings of the First Testament, but he also comes as an atoning sacrifice, reconciling us to God. But I have in this series been talking about the impact of the Bible. And here's where the Bible's impact is most clearly seen. We see the Bible's impact by declaring that there is but one God. The world's not a battle between competing gods who trick one another, nor is it the product of mindless, purposeless chance. Either one of those ways of thinking brings ruin and meaninglessness and chaos. Second, the Bible's impact is that, in a sense, it unifies all people. We're all created in the image of God, but that's only half the story. We're all sinful. 
We're all estranged from God. We're all universally culpable before God. To the critics who say that just plays on human guilt, the Bible gives a response. What the awareness of sin does is that it plays on the theme of the need for humility rather than arrogance and pride. We need to come to terms with our sins. Third, the Bible speaks of the need for revelation. God must reveal himself to us. We won't find him on our own. We're lost. Those who find themselves in Christ have no cause to boast over others. We simply say, Christ found me. Fourth, the Bible's witness is that God can be trusted. And fifth, the Bible teaches us that we need a Savior to reconcile us to that one true God. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, to be sure. But God so loved the world that he sent his Son to be our Savior. So why does that make a difference? Well, it makes a difference because God declares to us how we can be reconciled to him. See, that's the greatest truth. God is who he is, and there are no competing gods. But it also paves the way for things like humility and compassion for others and showing mercy as God does and forgiving our enemies and knowing that we are and can be loved. Only the Bible gives those values. And any group of people that reads the Bible is transformed. And where these values are lacking, human interaction changes. For the other worldviews have no basis for love and grace and meaning. Only the Bible gives us that. Therefore, the Bible is the most necessary thing that human beings can have. Thanks for your message, John. You know, I'm not sure many of us think about it this way, but but the teaching of the one God is absolutely central to the belief of the Christian, isn't it? Yeah, we can't be Christians if we are not monotheists. There is no such thing as a polytheistic Christian. Um, and, uh, you know, having said that, let's also again admit what I've already said, and that is the awareness of this one God came through Scripture and through Scripture alone. There are no other streams that have fed the human race with this information. So um, this is the, the basis upon which we stand, and we're so thankful of the impact of the Scripture on half of the human race. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Impact of the Bible, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Deuteronomy 11:19, we find instruction on our commitment to the teaching of the Bible. We are to teach His Word to our children, wherever we are, at any time of day. And that's the significance of our 11:19 Fellowship monthly partner program. So if you choose to join this monthly program, you're partnering with us to ensure that Bible teaching is being taught faithfully and abundantly. One monthly partner said, if your heart is to see Christians grow in maturity in their walk with the Lord and to see lives transformed and turned towards Jesus, I would encourage you to support the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada through their 1119 Fellowship Program. To join or for more information or to offer a single gift towards our dollar for dollar fiscal year end match campaign, 
call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.